Hi, I'm Louisa Burwood-Taylor, and this is AgFunder, a podcast about the entrepreneurs revolutionizing the food and agriculture industry and the investors behind them. In today's episode, I speak to Nick Faraday, who's the Senior Analyst of Consumer Foods at Rabobank, the Dutch food and agribusiness bank. In this role, Faraday tracks startup innovation and is a mentor at Rabobank's agri-food startup pitch competition, Food Bites, which last took place in Austin in September. In this podcast, I speak to Nick about how Rabobank's clients, the large food and agriculture companies, are reacting to this new wave of innovation, how they're working with startups, the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon, and consumer trends around natural simple food, as well as alternative meat products. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, My pleasure, Louisa. So maybe you can start by telling us a bit about your role at Rabobank and and how your work has changed amid this growing amount of innovation that's taking place in food and agriculture. It must be quite a different world now from when you started at Rabobank six years ago. Yeah, um, my God, that's certainly a large question uh, to to, to kick off with, Um, and and certainly we're seeing a a lot of changes. So I'm in the research group uh, at Rabo. Uh, We're not not a bunch of equity analysts. We're kind of more big picture trends type of guys, and I'm in the more consumer-facing part of of the food chain, so I'm definitely much more interested in what's happening at the consumer level and what's driving, um, uh, you know, at home uh, and how that plays out along the food chain. Um, In terms of changes, well, I think change is always there. It just depends who's doing the change and who's doing the the innovation. Um, But certainly when you look back five years or even 10 years, it is a a very different landscape um, to what what, what what we were used to seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And so you work closely with Food Bites, which is the pitch competition for startups in the food and agriculture space. And I'm just wondering, do they help you keep track of the trends? You know, what are what are the different ways that you're seeing all the all the new trends in, in innovation and technology? Sure. Um, well, I think if, if we were to talk about innovation and who's driving that, then then maybe, you know, to your first question, you know, Five years ago or even longer, it was the larger players that were driving a lot of innovation. We could certainly spend some time defining what we think is innovation, but it was certainly a lot more um, R&D um, initiatives coming out of the larger players, and, and there weren't so many smaller players coming up. And I think all that's really flipped in the in the last few years. And so what you're seeing now is it's the small emerging brands that are really driving innovation, either through renovating a, a tired category or for identifying what they like to say in the industry is white space, you know, gaps in the market and coming up with with products to that really talk to today's consumer or or the things that the today's consumer is interested in. So Food Bites for us is, is a great platform uh, to, to really, like you say, to, to have a, a first-hand insight in, into what's going on. You know, we get hundreds of applicants uh, for each event. And so by itself, that gives us an idea of what people uh, are interested in and what they think they can bring to market or where they think are opportunities. And, you know, then having being able to interact with these companies that we, we pick to present is, is certainly fantastic. Um, it, it's interesting because, you know, in my, in my part of the, the, the consumer, in my part of the food chain, you know, talking about what's new and, and new companies and what they bring to the table is really like the currency, uh, you know, in the same way that when I'm sure you interview 
folk who are more at the farm level and they talk about the latest USDA forecasts or where they think corn acreage is going to be, that becomes like the topic of conversation. In, in my world, it's all about what's new and what are you seeing that's different. And, and so that really takes you to the small players, the emerging brands, because they are driving a lot of change and disruption. And it's also of incredible interest to the large food companies because they're, they're kind of struggling to catch up and, and understand what's going on. Right, exactly. Well, yeah, obviously, as an analyst for Rabobank, your clients are mostly the big food and ag companies. So how are they coping with this wave of innovation or how are they interacting with it or not? Yeah, no, great question. I think I think for the longest time, there was a little bit of denial going on um, around what was happening. And so, you know, we were when they were looking at the certainly the larger players when they were looking at their sales and that their sales weren't going anywhere. In fact, some of them were, were heading heading south. It was very much oh, this is the this is the result of you know the lingering recession, or this is the the, the rise of private label and stuff. And there really wasn't enough introspection to really. Uh, look at their own portfolios and, and come to a rather, you know, scary and uh, brave conclusion that they needed to change, and um, because a lot of what they were producing was was less relevant than to previous generations, such as the the baby boomers. One of the things that we always love to think about was, I think the block, the CEO of Blockbuster, um, talked about Netflix and and said, you know, they weren't at all on their radar as being something competitive. And then I think two years later, Blockbuster went out of business. Yeah. Do you think food companies are, you know, yeah. aware of, of that threat or do you think it's taken them some time? Yeah, I, I think there's lots of those, there's, there's always those famous, you know, famous quotes from the past where, you know, people, you know, you know, found to be blatantly wrong. I mean, I don't think there's that level of of denial in in the food industry anymore. And certainly, when you hear to when you hear the the major CEOs of of the big food companies talk, they recognise the pace of change um, and and the, and the fact that consumers have have changed. Um, you know, change. They're used to change. Um, you know, companies that have been in existence a very long time, so they're used to you know change and fads and trends and what have you. But I think it's the pace of change that's caught a lot of people by surprise. And so they, they're going from a model where they're used to, you know, ramping up production of their existing brands or maybe tweaking them. And now they're in a world where maybe their brands or their iconic brands are less relevant and they're being threatened by all these emerging brands. And they're kind of struggling to, to adjust their business model to be as flexible and as nimble as some of these smaller companies. It's, it's a bit like one of those large oil tankers that, you know, they know they have to change direction, but it takes a while to, to, to do that. And, and certainly they're all making attempts uh, to do that to, to, to varying degrees. Of success. It's a bit, it, to me, it reminds me of that scene. It's probably showing my age in Wizard of Oz, <laughs> where you meet the magician, the wizard at the end, and he's kind of got all these levers that he's pressing. Um, and and I, and I have this image of these large food companies like pressing all the different growth levers, whether it's you know M and A mergers and acquisitions, or product renovation, or setting up a VC fund, all desperately pressing these and trying to kickstart their their top line growth, which in in a lot of cases is not that spectacular. But I mean, how nimble can they actually be? Because I think you're right that the mm. the pace of change is is constant. You know, it seems that there's new products on the market all the time, and with mm. social media and other marketing tools, you know, brands have a good chance of of doing relatively well if they have the right angle and consumers pick up on that. So, you know, and what is is it that consumers are just demanding more options, or 
are some of these new startups actually almost pushing the innovation forward? Yeah, no, I think it is very hard to, to be nimble. And so, and, and also you have to appreciate the, the you know, the operational environment, the, the working environment that these companies find themselves in. They've got a consumer that's, you know, changing or swift, more swiftly changing their preferences. And, you know, companies are talking to how, you know, health and wellness is being redefined in terms of away from low fat to, say, high protein or, or gluten-free or whatever. They're, they're facing a lot of cost uh, pressures from their shareholders and activist investors and companies like 3G who are really getting them to trim the fat of their organizations. And then, you know, you only have to pick up today's Wall Street Journal or what have you to read about all the changes and the increasing level of competition that's going on in the grocery level at the retail environment. So there's a lot going on. And so, you know, I think a lot of distractions from actually having a focus on that top line growth. But to try and be more nimble to, to answer that question, then, well, first of all, they're, they're buying into some of these growth areas. So, you, you know, a lot of these companies are recognizing that snacking is very much part of our culture and, and increasingly so. So they're buying into the snacking companies. They're buying into the health and wellness brands. And, and when they buy these companies, they're less likely to bring them into the fold of the big institutional, you know, the bureaucracy of the existing company and really just try and keep them separate and often leave them as a as a B corporation or, or something like that, um, just to try and recognize that, you know, they've just bought something, it's a shiny new toy and they need to be really careful how um, how they tinker with it in case they, they mess up what's, what's magic about it. Yeah, that's interesting. So, they, so you are finding they are being careful about that because we always think well, about acquisitions yeah. and how they handle those. Sure. No, I think that's actually, um, it, it's one of the questions we, we get asked the most about, well, you know, how is this all working out? And, and there are certainly examples in the past of, of you know, companies not, not doing that and, and really incorporating them and really kind of absorbing them. Um, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but it's a bit like the Borg, you know, assimilation or whatever. And, and now it's much more, if I can keep that, I don't know, sci-fi analogy going, it's more we come in peace. <laughs> Um, and right. so if you look at, say, you know, Annie's with John Foraker before he, he, did, he moved on, you know, they kept that separate. He stayed on board. They kept their offices in Berkeley. They didn't bring them back to the mothership of General Mills in, in Minneapolis. And similarly, Campbell Soup has made a number of investments and no one's been, no one's, they're not demanding them that they come and set up camp in, in Camden, New Jersey. Right. Um, and similarly, you know, with, 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 and so on and so on. So I think there is some recognition of that. And so also some recognition that, you know, these large companies have, have a lot to learn from these small players as well. And, and, and so it's, and it's a huge dilemma for these companies because how do you have a, an, an organization with 10 and in some cases hundreds of thousands of people and cultivate an entrepreneurial culture. I mean, it's almost impossible, I would imagine. Right. So I think there is, there is a bit of a balancing act. And, and so I would look to maybe the, the example of Anna's as a success story of, of how to do that and, and for other companies maybe to, to learn, learn from that. But also, I mean, it sounds to me like, so acquisition is the main way or a key way for these companies to stay relevant. But then it sounds like maybe they're going to end up having loads of smaller brands operating yeah. slightly independently. But I got the impression that a lot of companies actually 
feel they have too many brands or different products and they're actually yeah. downsizing their product portfolio. So how, how do those two yeah, so the, the, that's right. So again, you've you've really touched a, a nerve of some of the the, the tensions that that exist. You know, there are there's a there's probably a proliferation of you know of of, of types of products out there, and so there has been some rationalisation. But at the same time, I think there's a, also a recognition that you know where the consumer is right now is you may not be able to get to those I don't know billion dollar iconic brands that we're we're so used to you know aiming for in the past and so rather than saying that we're going to develop the next you know Oreo cookies which is going to take over the world we're going to have to recognize that we're going to invest in products that may ultimately have a shorter lifespan over time they may not be around and you know in, in 100 years or even 10 years and, and maybe we need a collection of these brands to try and hit that billion. Uh, and again, maybe General Mills is a good example of that, where they have eight, nine, or ten organic and natural brands, of which Anna's is one. Um, and collectively, they're aiming for you know a, a sales number. And so, for the large companies, it, it's a real interesting shift in their business model and their mindset and, and what have you about how they go about doing business because they're recognizing that it is going to be a collection of things that of brands or whatever that are going to take them to their target as opposed to just one big hit or one big win. So I'd love to talk a bit about how technology meets the brick and mortar, you know, restaurant or grocery. And obviously we had a fairly enormous deal over the summer with Amazon acquiring Whole Foods. Yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> you just heard about that. Um, yeah. You know, it's a tech first company acquiring a, a brick and mortar grocery store. What did what did you make of that when that hit the wires? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting when you try and look at that, you know, how this plays out in, in, in the industry. I mean, I think... Um, I mean, we, we talked already about the, the amount of change that's going on at retail as well. And so this is really adding, you know, even more complexity. Um, so technology and food has a bit of, you know, at a very general level, has a bit of a uneasy relationship, right? Um, so if I were to come to you and say, you know, I've got this great idea for a, uh, for a business and, you know, but it involves us you know, throwing out our, our cell phones and our iPads and our computers and going back to using typewriters, you'd probably laugh me out of the room, right? Um, but in food, that's that's exactly what's happening. You know, in food, we're getting rid of the, the science. We're taking out the artificial ingredients and, and the wizardry and going back to simpler, you know, fewer ingredients, organic, if you like, natural products. And, and so there is this, you know, ch- uh, you know another tension you know going on at that very very basic level and so when when technology when we talk about food and technology now it's less about this a new wonder ingredient i mean if i was to tell you that you know a company had come up with a new sweetener that's 10,000 times more sweeter than sugar you'd probably you know the average consumer might recoil in horror at that now you know there was a time when that would be seen as as a very positive development and so the technology story now, I think, is how, certainly at the consumer end, is really how the technology surrounds the food. So it could surround it in, in the packaging. It can surround it in, in how you go about purchasing that food. Um, so, you know, the idea that some people hold in the industry that the, the days are numbered when we all spend uh, you know, our time wandering around the aisles of a traditional supermarket. We will be firing up an app or, or speaking into, into, a, into our computers or whatever to, to make those orders and coming to collect it at a different point or have it delivered to our home. 
And and I think I'll, you know Amazon and and Whole Foods is all part of that story where Amazon has less of the savvy around food that the Whole Foods has, um, but it has its algorithms and it knows about efficiency and and you know and getting things delivered in a, in a timely timely manner. And and so I think that's probably the, the the you know I think most food companies or food retailers will suddenly you know will be less fearful of what Amazon and companies like that know about food, but it's more you know it's of more interest to them around what they can bring on the, on the technology side. Mm. I, I want to come back to um, the whole food delivery space because it's obviously fairly um, large in terms of what we cover. But just picking up on something you said about processed foods and natural foods. Um, you know, that obviously that's absolutely right and people want to know more about what goes into their food. They want more transparency. But there is another um, trend at the moment for alternative meats, um, cultured meat or plant-based meats, um, which I think actually is, is high, some of these products are highly processed. Um, and yeah. there are things going on in that technology that a lot of us don't understand. And so I'm very interested to know why consumers will be okay with that because I, yeah. is it the greater cause of replacing meat that's in there you know or are we kind of is there a potential for a margarine 2.0 situation I think <laughs> you know it's it's an interesting dichotomy well yeah well I first I should declare that I'm a big uh, believer in cycles and 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 things coming around and so at some point there will be a margarine 2.0 absolutely um I think um, I think it's super interesting. So when I get to speak to some of these companies um, that are pushing the more scientific, you know, lab-based meats or whatever, you know, the question I always ask them is, is the consumer ready for this? And of course, they're all convinced that the consumer is. But I would be a little more, having just said what I said, I, I would be you know, a little more skeptical. I think consumers have a priority of preferences, and probably the top one is usually around convenience. Um, and and uh, and so they'll be more persuaded to to make a leap if if they consider this new product a more convenient solution. But of course, there are other things as well. And you know, we the, the whole movement to towards plant-based foods is driven by lots of different drivers, uh, from ethical to sustainability to taste, um, and so on. And and it's not necessarily a vegetarian or vegan-based theme. It's more a flexitarian, where more people are just not necessarily looking for meat on their plate uh, every day. So it's it. I think I think you have to have that conversation now. Um, you know, around this is this is an interesting area. I think people are going to have to spend time to get comfortable with it for sure. I mean, you know, when yogurt still, you know, yogurt's very popular in this country. Greek yogurt's very popular, but we're still nowhere near the level of of consumption, say, in Europe. You know, 15 years ago, yogurt was pretty much nowhere in this country. You know, it certainly wasn't, you know, not in the same way. Because when you started talking to people about the, you know, the health benefits of yogurt, and you started explaining all about the, the microbiome, even probably that word wasn't even invented back there. But it's just this idea of that there were things in your stomach and you should feed them, you know, prebiotics or whatever. It was very alien, and so it takes a long time to often for consumers to get some type of acceptance. Um, so I think you know it, it's great to have those conversations. Conversations and, and certainly all the lab-based stuff and, and what's coming out of you know some of the accelerators like IndieBio or whatever and and our own Food Bites and, and Terra and stuff are all kind of pushing pushing the pushing it. Um, but I you know I think I think our 
which they say. I think the the planning horizons are often very optimistic about, you know, are we going to see these products on the shelf next month or next year? Probably not. You know, um, it's going to take a little while. Um, I mean, that's different to some of the things which are like a, a, a veggie burger 2.0, which isn't like the, you know, the 1970s tofu burger or whatever, or TVP, you know, they've got better ingredients and better taste profile. I mean, consumers can get that very quickly, but getting comfortable with, uh, um, you know, meat, a lab-based meat, I think will take. Yeah, it's funny how some of these trends just get a lot of uh, media attention. And when we released our agri-food tech investing report earlier this week, um, I had a journalist get in touch and say, I don't see any mention of, of cultured meat in here. Um, and it was because there was only one startup that was doing that, that had raised a, a small seed round. Um, you know, there just yeah, isn't the activity, yeah. but it's because no. Bill Gates, I guess, is invested or because it's it captures the imagination. And then Absolutely. people think these things are, are bigger than they are. Yeah. And I, I think that that also talks to the bubbles that we all live in, right? Um, and, and so we have to be very conscious of what, what we see and what interests the, the, the media and, and people in the industry and, uh, and where, that, where the, the regular consumer is in, the, in that conversation. Um, I think there are different levels of... of um, I think we all have similar conversations. We're at different stages of, of that conversation. And I think, you know, the media is often can get overexcited about some of these things for sure. So getting back to the topic of food delivery and also referencing our recent agri-food tech investing report, there was $2.7 billion of investment in food delivery services. Um, one of the, it was a mammoth deal of $1 billion from Ellie.me out of China, but even still without that $1.7 billion is a huge amount when you think that you you know of you know and that's that's over a third of what was raised overall and i i slightly get a little bit bored of of food delivery as a segment i think the amazon whole foods deal you know did put a bit of excitement into into this space um you know and there's been a little bit of a slowdown maybe in online restaurants so we we split it out into three different categories restaurant marketplaces online restaurants and meal kits and e-grocery and I think there's been a little bit of a slowdown in the online restaurant space but you know for restaurant marketplaces there's still a huge amount of seed activity and this and this is very global you know lots going on in Asia but you know what do you what do you see is going on here why are there so many entrepreneurs looking at this and, and how revolutionary are these services really yeah no great great point I mean I think um you know, it's still a hot area. You know, people it still seems to generate a, a lot of excitement, um, notwithstanding your own your own boredom. And I, I think it's kind of this thing of it's a great idea, but it's everyone's great idea. And and so you know, people are making you know their own uncoordinated decisions to enter this market uh, around the world. And each are coming up with increasing. I mean, it seems to be everyone's getting more and more niche, niche, right? In terms of what they're trying to deliver, rather than. Mm-hmm. So going from uh, supplying everything to very bespoke, you know, targeting pregnant women or, or vegans or vegetarians or paleo folk or, or whatever. Um, and, and I think it's interesting now that the, the larger players are getting involved as well. You know, there's been a whole you know, series of, of announcements about uh, you know, investments by the likes of Nestle and, and Campbell's. Now we just read about uh, the retailers are coming in as well. And, and I think we're probably going to be entering a period of, of 
slowdown and, and concentration where people realize that, okay, you know, it's a, it's a huge market, right? And there is a room for this. It's not going to take over the whole world, but it's another route to the consumer and, and, and see yeah. it as an opportunity. I mean, some of the large, if we just looked at the grocers, the supermarkets in the U.S., for example, you know, most of the big players, the likes of Kroger or whatever, have lots of different formats. Right. They have gas stations, they have big, huge stores, they have discount stores. And so to them, this is just another route to the consumer that they can you know, take advantage of either through their, through their own developing their own meal kits like they're doing already and selling them on the shelves or, or to experimenting in other ways. So I think, um, I think you know, it, 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 it's at that point of the market where probably the, the bigger existing players um, are, are coming in and just and, and there'll be some rationalization. Um, it's also, you know, it comes down to the ambitions of some of these startups because often at some point along the line, they, they don't actually want to go the whole way. They do actually want to be of a sufficient size to be sold by to a larger player, uh, whether that's a restaurant chain or a supermarket or, or a food company or whatever. So in some ways, it's a lot of excitement, but it not necessarily poses an existential threat to, to anyone. Because at the end of the day, they, they kind of have a sell me or a buy me sticker slapped on their forehead. Right, right. And and do you think then some of the large um, brick and mortar grocery stores would just acquire a startup to kind of help them start their own delivery? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a case of understanding, you know, what, what can they learn from these small companies um, and what will it bring to them, you know, to their existing system, um, you know. And, and this takes you back to the whole Amazon Whole Foods story where everyone's speculating about, you know, well, the move to bricks and mortar, you know, is that a recognition that at some point the customer wants to touch the produce and not everything can be online? You know, is it a story about having you know, 360 or 460, however many stores there are, as distribution centers to, to, to reach, you know, the target consumer? Mm. So I think there's a lot of exploration and, and to our earlier points about changing trends and changing consumers it's right you know to make um say a five million dollar investment in one of these companies as opposed to more capital investment and in building another store this is actually a very smart thing to do mm. in terms of you know small bets uh, and, and make some have some understanding and some involvement in, in what's going on and seeing what's scalable mm. and, and what, what isn't I think everyone's recognized that you can't just be what you were last year. You know, you have to evolve. Um, and so if you're a protein company, that protein includes everything now. It's not just a meat protein company, right? You have to think about plant-based because that's what the consumer's interested. And so it can be very, you know, run-of-the-mill stuff like, a, you know, soy protein or pea protein burger, and it can be all the way out there to algae and cultured meat. And I have to say crickets and cricket flour. And we get a lot of those coming through food bites and stuff. And it's, you know, and, and so it's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, what, how have you seen the trends change in food bites over the last few years that it's been running? Has it been running for about two years now? Yeah, it's, it's about, it must be in its third year. Third now. year, um, yeah. I think... Yeah, it, I think still interesting how many of the companies are really on a, on a mission to disrupt the, the space. Um, I mean, we get a whole range, you know, the Food Bites is all about the whole food chain. So we get ag tech all the way through to, you know, CPG, um, snack bars and, and what have you. But it, it's very interesting um, how 
you know, we, we, we get the theme of, of identifying that the, 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 there's something wrong with the food system and, and that company will, will provide a solution to that. And it could be in terms of a sustainability agenda, it could be addressing food waste or helping to identify or minimize food waste in, in the food chain. It could be, we get a lot of stuff around plant-based and alternative protein. Um, and, and also, you know, tech solutions. We talked to already about you know, how tech can, tech seems to work if it surrounds the product. So there are developments in apps and, and meal kits and, and things like that. Now, obviously, I can't help but notice that you're British, <laughs> as am I. And I'm intrigued to yeah. know, um, you know, did you cover the food industry back in the UK before you came here? Yes, I mean, um, it, it, there is some, I think we can laugh about two Brits talking about uh, the US market. Um, just uh, to improve my credentials, I right. did actually um, turn on an American, uh, become an American citizen in January of this year, if, if that helps. Uh, makes, oh, <laughs> um, improve my credibility. But yeah, I've spent my whole career kind of involved in food and agriculture. I started my career out doing basic farming systems research in Papua New Guinea, um, gosh, uh, a long time ago. And, and so I've, I've wow. kind of worked at different places along the food chain, if you like, but primarily in research. Um, and in the last five to six years, increasingly focused on the consumer facing stuff. Um, Right. Yeah, and I'm just intrigued about the difference in the European food scene and the US one. Or maybe not the scene, I mean, you know, actually the industry and how it works. Yeah, I'm intrigued about the sort of regulations. I think in Europe, you know, everything has to get approved first, whereas here it's sort of innocent till proven guilty and how that kind of plays into how, you know, big companies operate and and how you look at it. Yeah, sure. I mean that's a you know huge question, but I think you're right. I mean I think it surprises me how how big the differences are, and it come um, for sure. I think regulation is one, and, and that, that's why there's a, there is really an army of consultants in food who can help you know explain the intricacies of EU policies, um, whether that relates to GM ingredients or, or sugar policy or whatever. Um, and, and similarly, uh, you know, the route to approval of a, of a novel ingredient uh, or even technology, um, and um, and how that how that works, whether at the national level or the EU level, but also, um, you know, what drives the consumer, because the the, the European Union is you know is, is a collection of countries, and they all have their own unique cultures and, and food history. So, you know, it's very hard to generalize from one to the other. I mean, I think that one of the things that fascinates me is. There's increasing recognition, I think, about how we often talk about um, farm to fork. I think certainly on, on, on what drives things, it's often the consumer. So it's very much a fork to farm type, you know, uh, direction. I mean, not to say that commodity markets and ag isn't important. It is uh, for sure. But um, I something that we wrote about was, you know, the, the number of companies that are coming out with policies and statements around sugar and reducing sugar in the in their products. And so we've kind of moved from a everything in moderation type of to actually signing up or committing to similar type of food so sugar recommendations by the WHO and stuff. And so, you know, we're not coming down one way or other on sugar or anything like that, but it's it's a real world development and it has real implications for, for the sugar industry. And, and you know, and so to, to, to blindly assume um, that, you know, sugar consumption will continue to grow, so I don't know, say 2% a year, definitely, you know, we're kind of challenging some of those things because the consumer has moved on. But certainly a lot of differences um, 
you know, the go around, um, you know, between countries. And it's kind of what we do here. Rubber bankers help explain, either get companies excited about opportunities or, or scare them about trends that might be coming. And do you think, way. I mean, there's a lot more activity in uh, the US in terms of agri-food innovation than other parts of the world. It's about takes about half of half of the sort of deal activity that we report on. Do you think that regulatory landscape, that more relaxed regulatory landscape plays into that because it's just easier to launch new products here than it is, say, in Europe or elsewhere? Yes, I'm sure that is a factor, but I think that that, that the emergence of um of smaller players will, will certainly happen. I mean I think um I think there's lots of reasons. Um, I mean, private label is, is certainly a much bigger, important thing uh, in, in European markets. Um, like the UK, our home country, you know, 40% you know, of products are often private label. And I think that may act as a, as a barrier to entry also in a way that that isn't here. And so there may be more opportunities to differentiate. But I think as as these new trends, these, sorry, these new brands take hold in the US and as you pointed out earlier, the speed of social media, there is growing recognition. Um, and one only has to go to some of the food hubs around the world, you know, whether you're in, um, I think it's Shoreditch in London, for example, you know, that's no different from Brooklyn in terms of the things that they're doing. And I, we expect to see more of that. And it's kind of why we're, we're trying to roll out food bites in other parts of the world, just to be able to pick up on those trends, um, because it isn't, it, it's, 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 it, it may have originated or maybe most, you know, most, there may be most activity here, but we expect it to um, disseminate globally for sure. So, do you get involved with the startups at, at, at Food Bites? Are you are you have you done some mentoring, or do you speak yeah, with them? Yeah, so um, yeah, that's a lot of fun, and we have one in often next week. And so, I, I get involved in, in, in the selection of the companies, um, and and also in the mentoring of the of the ten demo companies that that. Um, that present at Food Bites. And that's a lot of fun, you know, meeting these entrepreneurs because they're the complete opposite of me. These guys are you know, highly made, you know, very driven entrepreneurial types. And it, it's, it's very infectious, the passion that these guys have for, for what they're doing and, and their commitment. Um, and it's certainly a very exciting atmosphere to be in and, and, you know, really appreciate getting those first-hand insights and connections absolutely well i hope it goes really well and i could probably keep talking to you about all thank the you. different trends for hours on end so maybe we could pick this up another time for sure thank you so much this has been fun you've been listening to ag funder subscribe to the show on apple podcasts to hear new episodes coming out every two weeks and if you liked it please leave a rating and a review as this helps the show get found so we can keep having conversations that change the way the world sees agriculture. For more news on food, agriculture, startups and investors, go to agfundernews.com and you can also follow us on Twitter at agfunder. I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor. Thank you so much for listening.